I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Daniel Glick. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, December 8th, 2015. Coming up, we'll discuss the underlying science and the policy implications of the current climate talks in Paris and what they mean for the planet, for Colorado, for scientists themselves, and for all of us. In the studio with us today, we have Dr. Walid Abdullahi, who's director of the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences, or CERES, at CU Boulder. Also with us is Dr. Lisa Dilling, an assistant professor of environmental sciences, also at CERES, and she joins our conversation with her expertise in science policy related to climate issues. Before we begin with a look at some of the recent news in science, I want to welcome Daniel Glick for returning to How on Earth. He's been a contributor in the past, and he'll co-host today. He's a journalist and author who's covered climate change extensively and was also an editor of the 2014 National Climate Assessment. So welcome, Dan. Thanks, Susan. Great to be here again. For the first headline, we have this intriguing news for really, really long-distance runners. Osteoarthritis is the most common arthritis. It happens when the protective cartilage on the ends of bones wears down over time, something that ultra runners may accelerate with their workouts. Osteoarthritis often worsens over time, and it's generally been assumed that once cartilage is gone, it's gone for good. But this view of cartilage destruction might not be the entire picture. That's according to research published last week at the annual meeting of the Radiological Society of North America. Researchers at the University Hospital of Ulm in Germany mounted a magnetic resonance imaging or MRI machine on a truck and followed ultra-long-distance runners as they competed in the unbelievably grueling Trans-Europe foot race. During this two-month-long ultra-ultra-marathon from southern Italy to northern Norway, the study group of 44 athletes ran nearly 3,000 miles without a single day of rest. The researchers used the special mobile scanner to analyze the runner's joints every three or four days. For the first half of the race, the results fed general expectations about cartilage destruction. Scans showed that, with the exception to the kneecap, nearly all cartilage segments of knee, ankle, and hind foot joints showed a significant degradation of cartilage. Then came the surprise. The MRI tests revealed that ankle and foot cartilage regenerated as the race continued. According to the researchers, this is the first time it's been documented that human cartilage can recover in the presence of loading impact over time. It will take further study to determine why the runners regain the cartilage or just how exercise might promote cartilage repair. In the meantime, the scientists leading the study observed that their new findings are one more clue that the human foot is made for running. The other surprising news is that runners lost about 6% of their brain's gray matter volume during the race. Thankfully, that brain loss was also reversed after about eight months. <laughs> Thank God for that. Yeah. And we'll be talking shortly with our guest today about the science and politics of climate change. But a new study by scientists and economists at Princeton University highlights some of the socioeconomic consequences of climate policy. Specifically, the researchers report that the share of climate change damages borne by the poor may have significant consequences for climate policy. Certain models estimate the social costs of carbon emissions, and offer predictions of future carbon prices that will minimize these costs. Typically, these models, called integrated assessment models, incorporate economic inequality be only between regions, while ignoring inequality within regions. The researchers modified a leading model to include economic inequality within regions, 
by breaking each region into income so-called quintiles. The authors used the resulting model to explore how the predicted optimal carbon prices varied depending on how climate-induced damages were distributed among income levels. Available empirical evidence suggests links between income and the economic impacts of climate change. Under such a scenario, the resulting model predicts that the optimal carbon price will be significantly higher than the predicted when income inequality within regions is not taken into account. At lower carbon prices, the damages to low-income groups could be sufficiently large to prevent their long-term income growth. The author suggests that when formulating climate policy, it may be essential to account for the unequal distribution of income and damages within regions. So that study was just published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Now onto the science calendar. Tonight at 6 p.m., the Boulder Café Scientifique presents new ideas about ways to give science undergraduates experience in real-world research. The presenter is Pamela Harvey, a neurobiologist and instructor in the Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology Department at the University of Colorado. Undergraduate science education traditionally includes mostly lecture classes with a small number of lab sections that provide introductory training and research techniques. Dr. Harvey will discuss how participation in independent research projects helps students learn more and increases the number of students who stick with science majors and careers. Dr. Harvey and colleagues have developed undergraduate courses that collaborate with research laboratories. These courses include research projects that complement ongoing projects in the sponsor labs. Examples include identification of novel chemotherapies and the search for new antibiotics to treat salmonella. Dr. Harvey will talk about the strategies and outcomes of these courses. That's the Cafe Sci Boulder tonight, starting with refreshments at 5.30. The talk starts at 6, followed with a Q&A. It'll be held at the second floor of the West Flanders Brewing Company at 1125 Pearl Street in Boulder. For more information and to RSVP, search for Cafe Sci, that's S-C-I, Boulder. Also on the calendar tonight, for you ocean lovers out there who understand that even those of us living in landlocked Colorado are deeply connected to the ocean, through our watersheds and even our diets. Come to a holiday blue drinks party sponsored by the Colorado Ocean Coalition. It's a nonprofit dedicated to raising public awareness and informing policy regarding marine conservation. The event will be held at Life Kitchen on Pearl and 16th Streets. It'll run from 5 to 8 and will feature live music from Matt Mosley and the Acoustic Ambush, as well as a silent auction. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Daniel Glick. And I'm Susan Moran. You've probably heard by now that political leaders from around the world have been meeting in Paris for the past week. It's the 21st United Nations Climate Summit. The leaders are trying to hammer out pledges to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, enough to keep global warming from reaching catastrophic levels. Negotiators are debating about issues like setting emissions targets and the responsibility of developed nations to pay climate change costs for poorer nations. But many wonder whether the world will emerge from these Paris talks with the agreements that could actually make a dent in arresting the momentum of climate change. Here to discuss the underlying scientific facts about climate change and the policy promises and challenges for our future are two researchers from the University of Colorado Boulder. Dr. Walid Abdelladi is a geoscientist who studied global-scale signs of climate change, 
including how and why glaciers are changing and what the implications are for sea level rise. He's also director of the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences, or CERES, here at CU Boulder. It's a partnership between NOAA and CU Boulder. Our other guest is Dr. Lisa Dilling, an associate professor of environmental studies, also at CERES. She brings expertise in science policy related to climate issues. She's also director of the Western Water Assessment, a CERES program that provides information for policymakers throughout the Intermountain West about the region's vulnerabilities to climate change impacts. So, Doctors Abdullahi and Dilling, welcome to the show. I want to start by setting the stage. So, as we said, and as you've heard on KGNU and elsewhere, uh, the Paris talks are winding down, or at least they'll end on Friday. So, Waleed, maybe starting with you, what have you seen coming out of Paris that gives you some hope, or for that matter, despair? I'll say the thing I've seen coming out of Paris that gives me a little bit of hope is the tone. It's different than the nature of the conversations we've seen in the past. I sense a, a higher level of commitment to action from nations that uh, historically have either been reticent or opposed, um, including the United States to some extent. And also, interestingly, the media coverage around this seems to be a little bit different than it's been in the past. There, there's a little more of a, a sense that this is an issue that requires attention and uh, requires meaningful action, meaningful steps. So I would say I have a bit of optimism simply because of the tone. The specific outcomes you know, remain to be seen and the impacts of those also remain to be seen. But it starts with attitude and I think we're in a place we haven't been really in the past at this level of discussion. A place we haven't been in terms of commitment or what? In terms of willingness to have the conversations and lean in. Mm. Well, let me ask a similar question to you, Lisa. People in the science world, we've seen these conferences come and, go, come and go. We had Rio in 92, we had Kyoto, Copenhagen, now there's Paris. Do you see progress, and more importantly, is it commensurate with the level of the threat that the scientists have been telling us is growing? Well, I would agree that with Waleed that there's a sign of optimism with this conference. Um, I tend to be... I tend to feel that these uh, levels of, of uh, effort are at the Nash international level. Um, they have been going, as you said, for two decades now or so or more. Um, and I, I think they, they have a great deal of symbolic significance, is my feeling. Um, it's very important that nations recognize the threat. As you mentioned, it is, it is real. It is happening. People are already seeing impacts. Um, and it's important that governments pay attention, especially among colleagues at the international level because this is a problem that affects us all. Um, on that being said, uh, I tend to feel that a lot of the effort to address this issue will actually take place at the national level and below. So, um, you know, it's very good to have a conversation at this international level and to uh, show this strong commitment at the international level. But in the end, where the rubber hits the road is what nations decide to do, what companies decide to do what states decide to do and what cities decide to do and, and what individuals decide to do. So um, I, I feel like these set a good tone. They, they bring the issue up, you know, every year in these conferences. The, the amount of civic engagement is incredible around these conferences. So that's very, very encouraging. I do think the real work to be done, though, happens afterwards when we get down to business. Well, we'll come back to some of that a little bit later in the show. But let, let's talk about this goal that everybody seems to be setting of, of two degrees. Uh, it, is it realistic? 
uh, is, how much is baked in the system already? Is this aren't we beyond the point where symbolism is important here? So, so there's a lot baked into the system already, and any strategy is going to require adaptation. Um, we are climate is changing in ways that affect people, and we have to learn to live with that. This um, two degrees. You know, whether it's in a two degrees Celsius, 3.6 Fahrenheit, whether it's a, an achievable target or not, I, I think, you know, people like clean, people like tidy. There is nothing magic about two degrees. It's, it's a number that's been chosen that, you know, we have some sense that if we go past it, the likelihood of, of severely adverse consequences goes up. If we stay below it, the likelihood remains a little lower. But when we talk about climate change and its impacts, it's about probabilities. It's about likelihood. There is so much we don't know. You, you hear it in the language. It may lead to this. It will likely cause that. And so I, I think it's a mistake to think, well, two degrees is a magic number. If we, if we make it to 1.95, we're okay. If we go to 2.05, we're in bad shape. Um, but it's a tool for communication. We need targets and we need to understand that the further we go down this path of warming, the more we're, we're loading the dice toward adverse outcomes, outcomes we can't manage. But there is no particular marker where you go from good to bad. And I think it's probably important to clarify for those who aren't totally in the trenches, sure. you're talking about two degrees beyond what? Oh, um, two degrees beyond the pre-industrial temperature so right. before things started really taking off and we're now about where uh i don't know exactly i think we're a little under one yeah mm -hmm. yeah so well on our way again yeah. celsius yeah. 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 yes yeah. celsius 3.6 right. would be the right. two degrees <laughs> so walid i wanted to ask you it's very timely this seems to be the week for a lot of letters written by scientists <laughs> to policy folks to, in this case, presidential candidates, clearly pegged to the Paris talks. And it seems that we're seeing more scientists really taking a stand, not necessarily activism. But in this case, I, I want you to address this letter you signed along with, what, 50 scientists yes. addressed to presidential candidates. And it looks to me kind of like a call to action. Tell us a bit about it and yeah. why you signed it. Yeah, I'm, I really try very hard to stay away from the area of advocacy. I think my value as a science is in presenting science, scientific information. I don't know a lot about policy. I don't want policymakers telling me how to do my job, and I don't know that I should be telling them how to do their job. But when we recognize a um, situation of importance and the uh, linkages between action and outcome are clear, I do think scientists have, uh, it's appropriate for scientists to stand up and say, these kinds of things are uh, likely to produce these kinds of outcomes. The particular letter I put my name to I did so uh, in large part because it wasn't a, we must stop this, we must do that. It was, it was almost an optimistic opportunity kind of letter that said, you know, we're on the cusp of great advances in solar energy and wind energy and in clean energy economy. Um, there are implications associated with how we're, we're functioning now that are likely to be pretty adverse. And here is this opportunity. I join my colleagues in encouraging uh, prospective leaders 
to embrace this opportunity, to work to understand it, and to create a situation in which it can flourish. So the letter, um, I, I usually don't sign those kinds of things <laughs> because I don't, I don't believe I should be saying we have to take this economic step and take this particular action. So being prescriptive it, about it. Exactly. <laughs> it, it was more, in my view, a recognition that there's an opportunity here for success as a nation, for leadership as a nation, that we would greatly benefit from by and looking closely and, and taking seriously it. And just a little more on the specifics. So who initiated and wrote the letter? The initial draft was written by uh, Peter Frumhoff from the Union of Concerned Scientists. Um, there were some initial signers, some very distinguished uh, climate and environmental and ecological scientists. There were about five of them. Um, before it was distributed to a larger group of scientists, uh, myself included. And uh, so it was originated with the Union of Concerned Scientists, but it was expressing ideas that the vast majority of us hold. And briefly, are you optimistic that some one of these candidates or the whole batch of them will read it, or is it more symbolic to the nation at large? <laughs> um, Not just read it, but actually do something with it, positive. I'm not optimistic that it's going to make a difference in the minds of an individual candidate, but I do think it is symbolic, and I do think it's one drop in the bucket of a changed conversation, and I wanted to contribute to that positively. Thanks. So we're having a conversation. I'm going to take a, a bit of a station break now. You're listening to KGNU Radio, 88.5 FM, 1390 AM. And if you're joining us a little late, we're in the studio with our guests, Drs. Walid Abdelladi and Lisa Dilling, both with the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences, or CERES, at CU Boulder. And we're discussing the promises and challenges and current global climate talks in Paris and what's at stake for all of us well beyond the talks. So, Lisa, I want to keep, keep going with this because... I mean, that letter, which you didn't sign, starts mm -hmm. Dear Presidential Candidates. And uh, another letter that's an op-ed in today's New York Times by Michael Mann, uh, well, listen, he, he uh, very unpolitically said that uh, some of the Republican presidential candidates have the scientific literacy of kindergartners. Um, so while they may not be, uh, you may not want to tell them how to do policy, they are, in fact challenging science quite a bit. Do you feel a personal attack or do you feel that there's something that's important happening here about the way science is being perceived in the political realm? Yes, and I should mention I didn't have an opportunity to sign the letter, so it wasn't that I didn't <laughs> sign the letter, but Fair I enough. didn't see the letter before it came out. So, um, yeah, I think these are all, this is a sign to me, this kind of debate, this Michael Mann uh, letter and the debate that's going on between Congress and NOAA and so forth, these are signs of the politicization at the moment of climate science in particular. Um, this can occur when um, people choose, people have very different values about what we think we should do about climate change. So all those presidential candidates up on the stage and said, what do you do? There'd be quite a big range of, of opinions on that. And so, um, but instead some of them, are, some people are choosing to debate the facts of the matter. Like does science, does climate change exist? Do we think it's real? These kinds of things in my mind are completely unproductive. Um, I think it's much better to focus on where we have common ground. Most people don't want to waste energy. Most people would like to have a clean environment. Most people want to provide jobs. These are the kind of messages that I think any candidate could really take on board. Um, I think these, uh, this rhetoric and so forth going on, I think it's really unproductive just to go to your question to call people 
illiterate or to say that they have the literacy of a kindergartner, I think that those those kinds of um, they're kind of insulting to say that to anyone, and I, I think that's a that's an unproductive way to engage the issue. So so personally, I don't I don't take it as a sign of personal attack myself. I see this as a sign of how serious this issue is, and and a sign that that this is misplaced. The debate is misplaced onto debating science and who's literate in it or not. Rather, we should be saying, okay, we disagree about how to handle this, but let's talk about those disagreements. Well, well put. I think both of you have a career in politics. Oh. <laughs> but let's, I don't know about that. <laughs> let, let's, let's bring this a little bit closer to home, Lisa. Here in Colorado, there's evidence that climate change is affecting forest health, fire regimes, water availability, and many other impacts. We don't have sea level rise to worry about here. But how are we doing in this state to respond to some of these impacts now and and looking into the future. Uh, this is where I have really good optimism, actually. I think this state, Colorado, is doing amazing things to respond to climate change, especially on the adaptation front. Um, there have been major efforts at the state level to look at how we manage our water and to look out into the future and say, how are we vulnerable to climate change and how can we shore up our water supply and make sure that there's enough water for everyone going on into the future. Um, I think we've also had incredible um, efforts made, and this was led by the citizens of Colorado, actually, towards improving our renewable energy portfolio. Um, we're uh, on track to actually exceed our goals in that area, mm -hmm. not driven by climate change concerns necessarily at all, really driven by the, the economics, the, the opportunity, the, the, the sort of like coming together around an issue. I think Colorado's been a leader in this area, actually. And as far as individual scientists and science institution like yours, Siri, NOAA for that matter, uh, maybe not NSF, but do you see a shift or do you want to see more of a shift toward individual and sort of groups of scientists actually doing more application-oriented climate science? You're, you're referencing some of what sounds like this now. Yes, I think that's what my organization is really working on, is how to do science in such a way that it can be really applicable to managing these kinds of impacts. And to do that, you really have to have more conversation between scientists and decision makers and lead with that as your first thing that you try to do, rather than doing your research for 10 years and then later on saying, oh, here you go, you might want to look at this. It's really a partnership with our, with our um, partners in Colorado, people like Denver Water, like the Colorado Water Conservation Board. These are folks that scientists are working with every day to make sure the science can be relevant. Mm, so sound pretty optimistic, really, on that front. I am. I'm an optimist, too. I guess you got two of them here. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, then let's uh, let's leave our listeners with, with a, a little brief takeaway of optimism. Then, Wally, what, what would you like people listening here to, to know about where we're at with this right now? Well, I would like people to understand that there are some real threats, um, that there are challenges that lie ahead, and... I have no question that we have the ability to meet those challenges. The only thing I question is do we have the wherewithal to meet those challenges collectively as a society. I have faith in people and capability, so I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll get to a place where uh, the worst outcomes do not materialize and some of the better ones do. And briefly, Lisa, what about you? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I think this is a long-term problem. You look at some of the societal changes we've had to make as in our history as people, and we some of these things take a long time, and you have to keep at it, and you have to not get discouraged because these things can take decades. And I agree with Walid what he said earlier about this two-degree magical target. It's, in, it's unproductive to say, oh, if we go just over it, all is lost. 
we need to be working every day. It's a serious, real problem, but it's going to take a while, and we just need to remain optimistic and work together at it. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, that was Walid Abdullahi, who's director of the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences, or CERES, at CU Boulder. And Lisa Dilling, an associate professor of environmental studies, also at CERES. Uh, check in again next week. How on Earth will continue discussion of climate science and policy? That time with uh, Craig Hover, author of A World to Come Home to, Ending Global Warming in Our Lifetime. And, of course, tune in to KGNU for continued coverage of the Paris talks and related events. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by me, Susan Moran, and it was engineered by Maeve Conran. Additional headline contributions by Joel Parker and Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the West African Blues Project. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Daniel Glick. And I'm Susan Moran.